Hallelujah. Um, I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me this evening to the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm going to read a couple of verses there. I think I just gave them one, but probably going to read a couple. And I want to talk tonight um, to you guys about our influence in the world. The, the believer's influence, the church's influence. I made mention a little bit of that about that this morning, that there should be, that the church today should have an influence in society and in the world. And I'm wondering where that is um, today. Amen. I've been praying quite a bit about that, seeking the Lord about that. What can I do? What can Abundant Life Family Church, what do we need to do to be a greater influence, a positive influence in our community and in the world? And uh, so anyway, in the Gospel of Matthew, and I want to share some things tonight along those lines and um, see, see if we can um, shed a little bit of light on what our responsibility is as a church and as believers in the world. It's more than us just coming to a service and going home and doing everything else and then just coming back once a week or twice a week or three times a week. We need to have, a, um, we need to have a, an influence in our community. That's why I say so many times that we need that we need, the church needs revival. And I'm talking, when I say revival, we think about, oh, calling an evangelist and all that. No, I'm talking about a revival that will actually transform and change our lives to the point, to the degree where the community itself is changed. And every great spiritual awakening and a revival of hi in history, that has been the case whether it was, you know, the Great Awakenings, the, the Welsh Revival, the Azusa Street Revival, uh, the entire nation was impacted. Communities were impacted by the presence of the church, by the presence of believers. Such a mighty impact in the, um, in the Welsh Revival, the, the revival in the Hebrides um, that took place under Duncan Campbell. Those revivals were so powerful that the, um, they called them grog shops or pubs or the taverns, closed down because they didn't have enough, they didn't have enough people um, going to the bars anymore. People actually got saved and their lives were transformed. And so it changed communities. And, you know, that's what we need today, a, a move of God like that. And I know some people would say, well, that ain't going to happen. Well, I ain't giving up yet. Amen. <laughs> I'm not giving up yet. All right. So in Matthew's gospel, chapter number five, Jesus is, has, given, has given the Beatitudes in chapter number five. And uh, in verse number 13, he gives a metaphor there. And he says uh, this, he says, you are, you're familiar with this verse. He said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor. When I, every time I read that, I think that's that Morton light salt. It, it don't have any flavor. 
I've tried that. <laughs> I've tried that before. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is good for nothing. And notice the words of Jesus. It is good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So Jesus here gives a, uses a metaphor, the metaphor of salt and light. But I want to focus in uh, this evening to begin with on this similarity or the metaphor that he uses of salt in speaking of those who are believers. And here he compares our, the church, he's speaking to believers here, to the saints, to the church, and he compares our function on earth to that of, of, of being salt. And I know we've all heard messages on this before, but there are, there are two major familiar uses of salt in relation to food. Now, I'll be the first to admit to you tonight that I love my salt. The thing that I don't like right now, I bet, well, a lot of things, but... Uh, that I don't like about the restaurant situation right now is they took away the salt shaker. And you, you, you have to ask for salt, and then, uh, you, then you have to wait for them to bring it to you. But uh, I do enjoy my salt on food, and I, I, I don't know what I would ever do if I had to be put on a salt-restrictive diet. I don't know how I'd, quite how I'd handle that because I really like my salt. But... There are a couple of uses of salt, familiar uses, and number one is we know that salt gives flavor to food. You can take food that is unappetizing by itself, and it does become tasty and acceptable when you put some salt on it and you add some seasoning of salt. And the Bible bears that out. Job Job said in, in Job chapter 6 and verse 6, he said, Can flavorless food, and now this is actually in the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, he said, Can flavorless food be eaten without salt? He asked the question, Or is there any taste in the white of an egg? I can't imagine eating an egg without some salt. I can't imagine eating a good piece of ice cold watermelon without some salt. I can't imagine eating some good sliced fresh homegrown tomatoes without some salt on there. I mean, they may be good within their self, but there's something about the salt, the presence of that salt just makes a difference. Can I get an amen from any salt lovers tonight? So the Christian's function in the earth tonight is to flavor the earth. I believe we can say that that the Christian, the believer's function is to bring some flavor to the earth. And who is the one then that enjoys the flavor? If we as believers are here as salt on this earth to flavor the earth, then who is it that we're giving good flavor to? Well, I believe that the one who enjoys the flavor of the presence of the saints of God in the earth is the Lord God Almighty, our Heavenly Father. That our presence 
in the earth, the presence of the church in the earth, the born-again believers in this earth, the, our presence makes the earth acceptable to God and our presence commends the earth to God's mercy. Because without, without us here, without the church here, can you imagine? You, you know, you can see the mess this world is in right now, even with the presence of the church here and the Holy Spirit here. But can you imagine what, what kind of a shape the, the nation and the world would be in if it wasn't for the presence of the saints of God? So without the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the earth, there would be nothing to make the earth acceptable to God. Because here I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna say something tonight that I believe to be a fact. And you can agree or you can disagree, that, that's up to you. But I believe that the earth is ripe for judgment today. Now there would be those that would disagree with that, but I believe that that is a fact. And God is going to judge sin. He's going to judge the earth because of its sin and because of its unrighteousness. And, and uh, you know, these folks that are doing what they're doing right now, uh, every night in America, they're not going to, they, they think they're getting away with that. But God Almighty keeps a record. Amen. And so the earth is ripe, ripe tonight for judgment, but because of the presence of the church and believers in the earth, God continues to deal with the earth in grace and mercy instead of wrath and judgment. We are still in the dispensation of grace right now. Thank God for that. But there's coming a day very soon when the church is going to be removed. The true church, I said the true church, is going to be removed from the earth and the, the salt is going to be removed and the light is going to be removed. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be here after the church is taken out of the earth. So it's the presence of the saints of God, of the church, of the righteousness of the saints that makes the difference and makes a difference in the earth. Now, this principle is illustrated in Abraham's intercession for Sodom. How many of y'all remember that story? In Genesis chapter 18, uh, you can read that. We won't take time to read that. But uh, God came and appeared to Abraham and talked with Abraham. And he told Abraham that he was going, he had, he, God was there with two angels. And the angels were going to be sent down to Sodom. And God said, I'm going to see if what uh, reports I've heard of the wickedness of Sodom, if that is correct. And so judgment, it was time for judgment to come upon the wickedness and the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their vile lifestyle, their rejection of God and their wickedness. And so Lot, or um, Abraham had a nephew by the name of Lot that was down there in Sodom. And so Abraham asked the Lord. When he found out the Lord was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, he asked the Lord this question and he said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? And then he said this, Abraham said, Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, we must understand this, and uh, that, that this was part of the intercession of Abraham, and he was saying, God, you're a righteous God. You're the judge of all the earth. 
you will do what is right. And it just would not be right. Would you, would, would you slay the righteous with the wicked? And then Abraham says, Far be that from you to do such a thing. And this is something we need to understand. And that is this. Now listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. If we have been made righteous in the Lord Jesus Christ by the blood of Jesus Christ. And how many, how many here have been? You've placed your faith in Jesus and by the blood of Jesus your sins have been washed away and you have been made righteous in Christ and you're living for Him and you're serving Him. Then if that's the case in your life, listen to me, it is never God's will that you or I, those who are righteous in Christ Jesus, it is not the will of God that we be included in the judgments that he will bring upon the wicked, upon the ungodly. There is a separation and there is a difference. As a matter of fact, if you are in Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ took the judgment for your sin on the cross. Amen. The wrath of God and the judgment of God was poured out upon Jesus at Calvary when he was taking your place and my place and everyone that puts their faith in him and accepts him as Lord and Savior and is made righteous by his blood. Hallelujah. You are not under the wrath and the judgment of God. Praise God. That is good news tonight. Amen. So we must understand there's a difference. Now, we must also understand this. I know there's been a lot said over the years that, that nothing bad will ever happen to, to a, a believer or to a Christian, to a child of God. But we have to understand this. There is a difference, and I think I mentioned this this morning, there is a difference in the wrath of God and the judgment of God and going through times of tribulation and testing here on the earth. Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. So there's a difference there. Just, you know, we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a world that is under the control and the dominion, so to speak, of Satan. The Bible says that the wicked one uh, has sway over this world. And so we're, there's going to be, Jesus said, you'll have tribulation as long as you're in the world. Um, but he said, be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. So we have to understand that we still face times of tribulation because we're in a fallen world in a fallen society. We also have to understand that as Bible-believing, born-again Christians that we are going to face persecution. I preached on that some months back, back in the winter, uh, about persecution that was coming upon um, even to this nation for Christians. So we've got to understand that persecution does come to Christians. So we have to understand the difference between persecution, suffering persecution for the sake of righteousness and the difference in that and God's judgment on the wicked. Amen. Just because we're going through persecution or having a trial or facing some kind of affliction in our life doesn't mean that's the judgment of God upon our life. Now persecution is different from judgment. Persecution comes to the believer from the wicked and comes upon the righteous and the godly. And I think we can get ready to expect more of that in the days to come. 
We've already saw some of it, and I think we can get ready for more of that, and we should be preparing for persecution. Uh, the Bible says, Paul said that all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Jesus said to, in that uh, fifth chapter of Matthew, he talked about blessed are those who are persecuted for righteous, righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So because we are righteous and living for Jesus and we're not a part of this world, the world, listen, the world hates you. If you're a, a true Bible-believing Christian, the world hates you. The world system hates you. Satan hates you. And uh, we in America uh, have been blessed to be protected. Our religious freedoms have been protected over the years. And we've had certain rights as, as Christians to worship the Lord. But those, those things are dwindling away. So you just will get ready. That if the Lord tarries is coming, there will be some persecution. That will come to the church here in the United States of America. So we need to get prayed up and get ready for that. Come on, amen. But that's not the judgment of God. Persecution comes from the wicked upon the righteous and the godly, but judgment comes from God who is a righteous God upon the wicked. And the Bible warns that we will suffer persecution, but we are not going to suffer the judgment and the wrath of God. That's why I believe in a pre, uh, pre-trib rapture of the church because we're not here, we're we're not appointed, the Bible says, to wrath. And there is going to be great wrath, the wrath of God poured out, especially in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, without mixture upon a God-rejecting world. Thank God for the Bible and what Jesus said, where he said for us to watch. He said, watch and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape the things that are coming on this earth and to stand before the Son of Man. Oh, hallelujah. I'm praying every day, Lord, I want to be ready. I want I want to be ready. I want to be ready for the rapture of the church. Amen. But should the Lord tarry his coming, we must be in the place as believers that we're strong in the Lord, the power of his might, that we know where we stand with God, that we're on the rock, that our faith is anchored in Jesus Christ and him crucified, that we're full of the Holy Ghost because there are some rough times coming and only those who are on the rock are going to be the ones that are going to be able to withstand the storm. Can I get an amen? So we are not included in the judgments of the wicked. Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two 32 that the believers, believers are chastened of God and the chastening, he said they're chastened of God so that they will not be condemned or judged with the wicked. So when a believer is out of line, you know, you don't hear too much about the chastening of God anymore, do you? I guess that's because parents don't believe in chastening their kids. I don't know. But, <laughs> but, but there is a chastisement and a chastening. And, when you, and I thank God for that because as a believer, you, you can get out of line or get disobedient, but God will chasten you and correct you if you're a son or daughter of God and bring you back into line. If you never experienced the chastening of God in your life, the Bible says that God deals with sons and daughters. He chastens them, but if you're not chastened, He said, you're illegitimate. 
Amen? And so the purpose of, of chastening and, and the chastening of God differs from punishment because it is for the purpose of correction. Anytime God chastens us, it's to bring us back in line. It's to correct us and get us back in line. Amen? It's not for judgment, but it's for, it's not for vengeance, but it's for correction. The purpose of God's chastening in our lives is to keep us from the judgment of unbelievers. And that's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven thirty two, uh, in the in the ninety first Psalm, and we've we've read that and and preached from the ninety first Psalm, and we're all familiar with Psalm ninety one. But in Psalm ninety one. It says this in verse number 7 and 8. It says this, talking about the protection of the godly. And it says, A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes shall you look and see the reward of the wicked. The judgment that comes, uh, this is talking about the judgment that comes as the reward of the wicked, that comes upon the wicked. And that judgment should never fall upon a righteous individual who is in Christ Jesus. You know, when you read the book of Exodus and you read about the judgments that God brought upon the Egyptian, uh, upon the Egyptians, there was ten plagues, ten judgments that God brought upon them. But when you study that, you find that God's people, Israel, God's people, right in the midst of, were right there in the midst of Egypt. And during those plagues, not one plague of judgment touched them. The Lord, Exodus 11, 11, 7 said, the Lord will make a difference between you, my people, and the Egyptians. There is a difference today between the church, the born-again believer, those under the blood, and those who are not born again. There's darkness and there's light. And I'm, thank God, I am in the light. How many is in the light tonight and a part of the family of God? So, so that was what Abraham was stressing to God. He said it wouldn't be right for, the God, for, for you, God, the righteous God, to destroy the righteous with the wicked. So then Abraham goes on and begins to make intercession to the Lord for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. These were wicked cities, weren't they? These were cities steeped in wickedness, um, uh, homosexuality, all kinds of perversion. And so God was getting ready to bring judgment upon them. And Abraham begins to intercede because Lot is there. And in, in Genesis chapter 18, Abraham begins his intercession by asking God this. He said, suppose there were 50 I love reading this because it's, it's Abraham, man. He's the friend of God. And God said, you know what? I know Abraham and I, I'm not going to hide from Abraham what I'm going to do. And so now Abraham's talking to God and he said, well, God, you know, I know you're going to do what's right, but you surely wouldn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. He said, just suppose. What if there's 50 righteous people there in Sodom? Would you destroy the city if there was 50 righteous there? And you know what the answer to God was? Of God was? God said, I tell you, if I find 50 righteous there, I will spare all the place, the whole place, I'll spare for the sake of the 50 righteous. Well, Abraham said, okay, what about if there's 45? <laughs> 
and then it goes down to 40, and then down to 30, and then down to 20, and Abraham intercedes with, intercedes with God, and every number Abraham gives to God, God said, okay, if there's, if there's 40 there, if there's 30 there, if there's 20 there, and Abraham said, I'm gonna speak one more time. I'm just gonna ask one more time, Lord. He said, if there's 10, if there's as many as 10 righteous in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, would you spare the city for the sake of 10? And God even said this in, 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 in Genesis 18, 32. He said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10 righteous. But the sad thing was there weren't 10 righteous people there. But I'll tell you what it did do. Abraham's intercession didn't spare the entire city because there wasn't 10 righteous people there, but it did get his kinfolk out of there. It did deliver Lot and his family out of there, which I believe is a type of how the Lord's going to take us out, the church out, before the judgment of God falls on this world. Amen? So, so, so the Bible establishes here a principle. And the principle that is established here, what we've tried to lay out, lay out here, is that the presence of righteous believers is a decisive factor in God's dealing with a community or a nation. God takes that into consideration. And I'm going to say that again. The presence of righteous believers is a decisive factor in God's dealings with a community or a nation. I don't know what the population of Sodom and Gomorrah was and neither does anybody else because I tried to find out. And if you can't get Google to know it or Siri don't know it, nobody knows. But <laughs> what we do before all that, and uh, you know, but 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 uh, I did do a little research and a little study on that, and uh, even though we don't know for sure, one one individual suggested that based on some of the sizes of the other cities around and the populations of some of the other cities that we do know of in the Bible, that even though we don't know the precise population of Sodom, that it was probably not less than 10,000. It was at least 10,000 and maybe more than 10,000. I think they mentioned that Ai, the city of Ai was 12,000 that is listed in the Bible. So, so 10,000, would you see Use that for a round number. Let's say the population was 10,000. So if 10 righteous people, now, now get this, if 10, I'm not a mathematician, okay, but if 10 righteous people by their presence would preserve a city of 10,000, that is a ratio of one to a thousand. And if you, you figure that all out, that would mean a hundred to a hundred thousand or a thousand to preserve a million. And when it comes to the United States, and here's the thing that I'm, that I'm thinking about and I've been praying about, I've been thinking about, there's what I think, I think the last census, 325, 328 million people in the United States. So it would take on that ratio, and I'm not saying this is a biblical 
fact, but on that ratio, 300, uh, 328,000 born-again, righteous, blood-bought Christians will cause God to deal in mercy and grace in a nation, in a world that is turned upside down and is steeped in ungodliness and wickedness. But when I see what's going on, I'm wondering, God, can you even find can you even find one in ten or ten in a hundred truly righteous people. Only God knows who they are. Can I get an amen? So, as saints of God, our, one of our functions is to flavor the earth and make the earth flavorful for the mercy and the grace of God. And as I said a while ago, I'm glad that right now God is dealing in mercy and grace and not judgment. But there's coming a day when that's going to, going to turn around. Now, Brother Rick, do you have to, do you have to, you know, we want to hear, we, you know, that's kind of like the people said to, Je, to Jeremiah, don't, don't prophesy to us those hard things. Tell us smooth things. Tell us easy things. We want to hear good things. Well, there's a lot of good things, and I've told you some good things already, that God is, 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 is acting in mercy and grace toward America because of the righteous that are here. I know there's more than 10. I know there's more than 100. Amen. I don't know how many there are. I don't think you can go by the, by the, poll, by the statistics. You can Google it. How many Christians are, how many born again Christians are there in America? And you can get a number, but, but, the, but Google don't know. Because everybody that says they're a Christian is not born again or in Christ or washing the blood. I'm not, being, I'm not being a judge, but that is the facts. Amen? That is the truth. And only Jesus, only the Lord God knows those. The Bible says that God knows those who are His. Come on, somebody. But when I see the lawlessness and I see the sin and I see the iniquity and I see the mayhem and everything that's overtaking our nation, I'm wondering, God, where are the righteous? Has the salt lost its flavor? Come on, somebody. So it flavors. But secondly, the second thing that salt does is restrains corruption. I know none of us, I'm not old enough, none of us here maybe, I don't think, are old enough to remember the days before refrigerators. I've always had one. Refrigerator, freezer, whatever. But before the days of refrigeration, well, you know, they had those old ice boxes where you put a block of ice in. Amen. Some of y'all had those. But it was refrigerated. But before those days, there was a means of, of preserving food, preserving meat, and they would put it in salt. And salt would slow down the corruption. There was, it, would, it would keep it from spoiling as fast. It would be able to keep, you could keep the meat longer. And so when they would, when they would kill a, an, an, uh, you know, a hog or whatever, they would put, put it in salt to, uh, to slow down 
the corruption and keep the corruption in check. And see, here's the thing. The corruption of sin, there's a corruption of sin that is, in the, that is at work and working in the earth. This, this planet, this, this, this earth is cursed. This earth is corrupt. This earth is under the curse of sin and will be until the Lord comes back. But the corruption of sin, you can see in every area of human activity, there's corruption, there's evil that is here in the earth and it is in, at work. You go home tonight, we will go, we will go home tonight after the service and we'll turn our news on and we'll see corruption at its highest apex almost in the streets of the United States of America tonight. And so in every area we see it working, but we, here's the thing, this is the purpose of the church in the world today, and that is as the salt of the earth, not only to make this earth flavorable to God for the mercy and grace of God, but also that we can hold in check the evil long enough for God's purpose and grace and mercy to be fulfilled in the earth. See, when our presence, the presence of the church, is no longer felt and no longer has an influence, then corruption will reach a place of its age of its climax and the result will be total degradation. And that is what we're close to, ladies and gentlemen, today. That's why I struggled with this message and I struggled in my prayer time because I said, God, are we there yet? How close are we to being there when I see what's going on in the world today? Could this be where the church is today? Have we lost our preserve? influence. That's why I preached the way I did this morning because we need, if we ever needed a fresh baptism in the Holy Ghost, it's now. If we ever needed God to fill us again afresh and anew and bring us back to where we need to be with Him, it's now. I don't know about the other churches but I want this one right here on Highway 221 to be a preserving influence in this community. Salty saints. How many salty saints we got? Go with me to 2 Thessalonians. We'll close this out here. I'm almost done. I know you can't believe that. 2 Thessalonians. Is that what I said? Boy? Chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul here, the Apostle Paul illustrates the power of salt, the power of the church, the power of a positive influence to restrain corruption. And Paul in these writings here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 warns the church at Thessalonica and us today as well, uh, that a human wickedness is going to come, and when human wickedness has come to its apex, that it will manifest in a person empowered by Satan himself called the man of sin. 
or the son of perdition. We know him, and John in 1 John 2 refers to him as the Antichrist. How many has ever heard of him? The Antichrist. The Antichrist will be that person that is the man of sin, or the man of lawlessness. He will come on the scene. He will claim to be God. Paul mentions that here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that he will set himself on the throne of the temple in Jerusalem. And I don't have time to go into all that, but you know that the Jews will accept him as their Messiah. He will do a lot of great things. He will come speaking peace. He will sign a peace treaty of seven years with Israel. But then in the middle of that of Daniel's 70th week, in the middle of that week, he will break that treaty and show his true colors of who he really is. And um, it will be a time in that last three and a half years of tribulation where Jesus said, will be great tribulation such as never has been, nor ever will be, that will take place during that time. But the Antichrist will emerge um, in the very near future. I believe, I believe, personally, our beliefs here and in the Pentecostal Church of God, the Assemblies of God, and um, our, you know, all of our um, full gospel churches that I'm associated with believe in a pre-tribulation rapture that the event that will remove the restraint for the Antichrist to emerge and come on the scene will be the removal of the church from the earth, a restraining force. But the Antichrist will emerge in the very near future. I, I, don't, I don't believe that we will see him. There's some that believe that the church will. I believe that the church will be gone before this comes to the apex. And uh, some say, well, you're wrong. Well, we'll just have to wait and see how that plays out, won't we? But the spirit of Antichrist is here now. The spirit of Antichrist is in the world now. And the Bible says that in 1 John 2, 18, that the spirit of Antichrist, there are many Antichrists in the world. The spirit of Antichrist is here in the world and the spirit of Antichrist is working now. And Paul says there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, let's just read here verse number um, 3, 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. So what I mentioned a while ago, he will declare himself to be God and demand worship from the people. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things. Verse 6, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. Verse 7, listen, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. I want you to get that. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work 
Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the power of, uh, with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And those who refuse to be saved now will be deceived by that Antichrist and will follow him. And listen, during that time, you all know the story, don't you? I mean, we've, we've been through, you know what we've been through lately with the pandemic. During that time, the Antichrist, the beast, will introduce a, the beast system where everyone will have to receive a mark in the right hand or the forehead or they will not be able to buy or sell. That will be mandated. And I know I've heard people say, well, I, not me. If I miss the rapture, I'll not take that mark. Well, I, 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 I don't know. I, I kind of disagree with that because I've saw how people just fell in line like sheep to the slaughter in the last few weeks. Amen. They'll do what needs to be done to get their groceries and get their gas and, and feed their children and everything else. And that's not my message tonight, but the point is we don't want to be here when all that takes place. Amen. So Paul is giving this illustration here and he says in that seventh verse, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And we see the lawlessness in the streets of, our, of the cities of our nation. Tonight, there is lawlessness. Let me tell you, I, I just watched a little bit of it today when I, when I was sitting there after I got home from eating and I turned on the news and I watched a little bit of it and there was no police officers in sight. But these, these, these and, and our president said they were thugs and I have to agree with that. They are, that's all they are. And these thugs had taken police cars. They, they'd taken the police caps. They were wearing the police hats. They were squirting um, lighter fuel on the police, raising the hood, squirting lighter fuel, setting the cars on fire, busting the windshields out. There was not a police officer, a, 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 a National Guardsman, anybody, anywhere around trying to curtail this behavior. Stores were being still being looted. I mean, just, just stealing and robbing. This, ladies and gentlemen, is lawlessness. It's that spirit of lawlessness. It's the spirit of antichrist. And the, the, listen, the, the, the duty of the church is we're supposed to be the restraining force. Boy, it got quiet all of a sudden. So there is the presence of this antichrist lawless spirit, but there is also at this present moment, or should be a force at work in the world that resists, challenges, and restrains the Antichrist spirit. That's what Paul was saying here. There is a force, and I believe that it's, I don't believe that it's as powerful and strong as it should be. But nevertheless, the church is the force that is to challenge, to restrain, 
and stand against. We are to be the restraining power holding back the full emergence of the Antichrist. The church, the true blood-bought church filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit is that force that, sh- that is to be restraining the spirit of lawlessness. Jesus said in John 14, He gave them the promise that He was going away. He said, now I'm going to pray the Father and He'll give you another comforter. Jesus said in John 16, 7, this, it's to your advantage that I go away because if I don't go away, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, the Helper will not come. But He said, I'm going to go away and I'm going to send Him to you. I'm going to send you another Helper, which is the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm leaving, but I'm not going to leave you orphans. I will send the Holy Spirit to be with you and to be your empowering and your help. That's why I think it's so important that the church be filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. Without the power of the Holy Spirit, we're useless and we're helpless. So Jesus promised He was leaving. Holy Spirit would come. That exchange took place. Jesus ascended to heaven. The Holy Spirit descended on the day of Pentecost as we preached this morning. And so the church, the body of Christ, is to be empowered and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That church that's empowered by the Holy Spirit acts as a bear that's restraining the emergence of the Antichrist and is to be restraining the spirit of lawlessness. Now, has the church failed? There is a failure somewhere in the church. I'm not saying that we're backslid. I'm not saying that we're not going to heaven. I'm not saying that we're not righteous. But the, but the listen to me, saints, the, the church is losing its saltiness, its savor, its influence and its power to restrain the evil of this world. And I think one of the main reasons for that is because that the church as a whole has become like the world, has become friends with the world, has allowed the sin of the world in it, and the savor's not there. Hallelujah. I said the savor, the flavor, the saltiness, not that we gotta get that back. Will somebody help me? We gotta get the power and the savor of the salt back in the church today. There is a remnant church, ladies and gentlemen, and I want this group of people to be a part of that remnant. So have we failed in our two primary responsibilities? by our presence to bring God's continued grace and mercy to the earth and by the power of His Holy Spirit within us to restrain the forces of corruption and lawlessness. Listen, as as long as the church stands strong, as long as the church stands uncompromising in its faith, And in the preaching of this book, I talked to someone after the service this morning along these lines. The problem with the majority of the the biggest part of the church today is no longer preaching the Word of God. 
We've substituted the preaching of this book for book reports. Preachers are buying their sermons on the internet. They can buy the whole thing, download it, and put it on the screen, and they don't even have to read the Bible or pray. The church has become a venue of entertainment instead of a place where saints tarry in the altars and intercede and pray and seek the face of God. As long as we will stand strong, we've got to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. We must have that power to restrain and hold back the final manifestation of lawlessness in these last days. And here's the thing, folks. Satan fully knows all of this that I have told you tonight. And his primary objective, the primary objective of Satan tonight is to destroy the faith and the righteousness of the church, to weaken the church, to make the church lukewarm and powerless with no restraining force in the earth so he and his cohorts of hell can have their way in this earth and in this nation. And he's just about accomplished that. I said he, I'm not giving the devil any credit, but he's just about accomplished that. Satan knows if the barrier is removed, he can gain the spiritual and the political control of a nation. And he's just about accomplished that. There'll be Christians this election in six months that will not even go to the polls and vote. They'll just say, well, let God have His way. You better wake up. We cannot allow demon-inspired, demon-controlled individuals with a demonic agenda, with a socialistic agenda, have control of our country. Because as soon as they do, the demon powers of hell will have full control. You ain't seen nothing yet. You ain't seen nothing yet. We better be praying. I said I was closing. This is my second and last closing. <laughs> Look at that third verse there in 2 Thessalonians 2. Verse number 3. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day that's the day of the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, will not come until the falling away comes first. The falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed the son of perdition. So there's something here that Paul says that will happen to cause the man of sin to be able to come on the scene to cause the, the spirit of lawlessness to gain control, which, yes, it will be ultimately the rapture, but what he refers to here in the falling away is the word apostasia, which means apostasy. And apostasy is a departure from the faith. It's a departure from the faith. Jesus described His church there as being salt and being light, 
and we become like salt. See, when we depart from the true faith, when we depart, there, listen, there's only one faith. There's only one faith. It's the faith. There's not, there's not five different ways. There's not even two different ways. There's only one way. And there's only one faith. And that faith is in Jesus Christ, crucified, buried, raised from the dead, and ascended on high. Amen? He's at the right hand of God. That's the only faith. That's the only way to be saved is through faith in Christ. That is the faith. And when there's a departure from the faith which I see so much in the church world today, when there's that apostasy, that falling away, as I mentioned a while ago, that lukewarmness, then the salt loses its savor. Jesus talked to that church at Ephesus. He said some good things about the church at Ephesus, but then he said, but I have something against you. You've left your first love. You don't have the love for me you one time had. That, that Laodicea and he goes through all of those church ages and that Laodicean church was the last church age before the rapture of the church and that's the age we're in now when he said you are rich and you are increased with goods and you say we have need of nothing the church has never been more wealthy and more rich materially in, in any point in history than it is today but it's never been more wretched and poor and powerless and vile than it, ever, than it is today Jesus said, you need some eye salve so you can see. He said, you don't even know that you're wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He said, we don't, that church said, we don't need anything. We've got all we need. We've got, a, we've got three or four campuses. We've got millions of dollars in the bank. We've got, you know, a whole platform full of entertainment. I ain't preaching too good tonight, am I? But that was the salt, the flavorless salt. That was the condition of the church. He warned, Jesus warned, that if the salt becomes flavorless, I, 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 I'm going to read the words that Jesus said, but he said, if the salt becomes flavorless, it's good for nothing. It's good for nothing. It does not, ought to not even exist if it doesn't have the flavor to, to influence the world as it should. If it doesn't have that, 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 that preserving effect. If it's not going to be a restraining force against sin and the powers of darkness. It's good for nothing. If we fail as believers, if we fail as a church, there is no hope left. There is nothing else. We cannot fail as a church. We must be a church on fire for God, full of the Holy Spirit, living in the, in the righteousness and holiness of Christ, forsaking the world, We've got to be a powerless church. Worship team, you can come. Listen, there are, there are only two choices. There are only two choices. And the, those two choices are we either overcome or we will be overcome.
That's it. We either will, will overcome or we will be overcome. Well, I don't want to be overcome. Jesus wants us to be an overcomer. And listen, that's not a given that we're going to overcome. We have a part to play in that. By trusting in Him, believing in Him. You know, Jesus, when He gave those messages to the churches in Revelation, at the end of every message to the church, He gave a reward for the overcomer. And He said, to him that overcomes, I will blank do this or this. To him that overcometh, I will do this. Well, that tells us then that we have a part to play on whether we overcome or not. Everybody's not going to overcome. Only the rewards are going to be given to the overcomers. And those that don't overcome will be overcome. I don't want to be in that category. Do you? Do, do, do we as a church? And I, I, I pray and seek the Lord constantly about this situation that God, you know, I, I believe with all of my heart that God raised this church up and God planted this church and God has grown this church and God has brought this church to where we are today. God has given us this property. God has provided us with this building and he didn't do it just so we could sit here and have a little bless me club. Amen? Amen? He didn't do it just so we could sit here and have a little bless me club and, 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 and play church all the days of our life. He's got a purpose and a plan for us to fulfill as his body. And I, and I seek him all the time. God, show us that purpose. Let us fulfill that purpose. Lead us in that purpose. And I know that we can't, we can't fulfill that purpose without the power of God. I'm going to do my very dead level best to preach the true gospel to you people. I'm not going to, I'm not going to back down. I'm not going to water it down. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. We can't have that in these last days. There's enough of those sugar coaters out there. You can find them if you want them. But we've got to have the true word of God. We've got to preach it like it is. We've got to tell it like it is. We've got to live it like it is. We've got to seek him. My Lord, if there's ever a time for us to draw near to God and to be in the altars and to have prayer meetings and to seek the Lord, it's today. It's today. Has the pandemic had an effect on the church? I look Look at this crowd tonight and say it doesn't seem like that has affected anybody. Maybe things must get a little bit worse before the church will wake up and be the influence that we need to be. Well, stand with me tonight. Come on.